Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayat. Think of any major historical event, say something relatively recent, from World War II. What comes into your mental viewfinder? Now, think of the ancient past, centuries before movies were even invented. Slaves are mine. Their lives are mine. All that they own is mine. Who are you to make their lives bitter in hard bondage? Let my people go! Historical movies are just that. Movies. They're scripted, made up. They feature actors, directors, editors, and of course, special effects. But what we see on the screen doesn't just stay on the screen. The images burn themselves into us. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. I remember watching movies with my mother all the time when I was a teenager. We watched so many period dramas together. She absolutely adores historical films. They combine her twin loves of history and the movies. Contributor Kim Nelson is a professor of cinema arts at the University of Windsor, Ontario. So, of course, I went on to become a film scholar with a special interest in history films. I prefer to keep distractions to a minimum. Would you call flowers a distraction then, Mr. Stevens? I appreciate your kindness, Miss Kenton, but uh, I prefer to keep things as they are. Kim Nelson's documentary is called Picturing the Past, where she explores the rich and sometimes troubled relationship that historical movies have with the past and what they say about us now in the present. I think of history films as being like a peanut butter cup, the perfect treat that combines the savory seriousness of history with the enthralling sweetness of moving images. Imagine the Roman Colosseum 2,000 years ago. What if we could roll out a screen and present Gladiator to them? What would they think of it? I'm fascinated by this form of history, this dance of vibrations and light, because it's so personal, it's so popular, and so convincing. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Robert A. Rosenstone. I'm a professor of history at the California Institute of Technology for the last 50 years. Robert Rosenstone is one of the most prolific and influential historians to consider the implications of history in the moving image. The historical consciousness of the public comes from films and television. I'm not saying every historical film is a major work of history. 
but I think we need to allow them into our discourse on the past, or at least recognize them. Film has the power to literally bring images that represent the past into contact with the present, so that we actually can see the past and the present side by side. My name is Allison Landsberg, and I'm a professor of history and art history at George Mason University. The ability for film to sort of play with temporality that I think makes it particularly well suited to this task of visualizing the past and the present and to recognize that what we're calling the past exists maybe in a slightly different form in the present. That dialogue is a kind of magic. It summons the disappeared to reappear, to be witnessed by us in the present. You have been ordered out of the province on the grounds of disturbing the peace. But this magic trick also inspires intense reactions, from delight to outrage. With respect, I refuse to go. I'm Hannah Gregg. I'm a consultant to film and television. Hannah Gregg is a historian of 18th century England at the University of York in the UK. As an expert on material, social, and political culture, she's extremely sought after to consult on history films and series from The Favourite to Bridgerton. Alex von Tonselman, I'm a historian and screenwriter working mainly on historical drama. Alex von Tunzelman used to write a column for the Guardian newspaper that pointed out mistakes in history films. But then she became a screenwriter of history films and series, dramatizing the lives of the powerful, from Winston Churchill to the Medicis. Florence is lost! Both Alex and I have an interest in having those conversations about what film does with history, what the value is, what kind of conversations you, you can have around it. And also that kind of insight into a production process, which isn't necessarily that typical for historians who are working in a strictly academic context. The way I kind of got into thinking about film and history was I wrote a column for the Guardian newspaper in the UK called Real History, which was absolutely picking apart films in terms of the accuracy in what I now think is quite an old school way. You know, Alex obviously has a lot of expertise as a writer, creating her own dramas. And then I have this slightly unusual position of being the kind of academic who sometimes gets to have a little step onto a set or to work in the development of productions. And I think that helps us understand how seriously history can be taken in the production process and also how difficult it can be just to draw a set of judgments on the back of one single thing that you've spotted like the pot that's slightly out of place or the jacket that you think the collar's wrong on or and how distracted we can become by those conversations about accuracy that are just about those points of detail where you miss the bigger picture. For a lot of people, unless they are reading good books or watching very good quality documentaries, historical drama is really the main way they engage with history often as adults. And I think we do need to treat it seriously and not just act like teachers marking homework, ticking them off, you know, but actually engage with these ideas and kind of and see where those discussions take us. Did you just look at me? Did you? Look at me. Look at me. How dare you? Close your eyes. The depiction of history on screen is vigorously debated by scholars of film and history. Many of the things that we read in history books have been equally fabricated, not because the historian was wanted to lie or wanted to make up stuff, but they came up with explanations. We, they came up with causal relations. 
I am Ria Thanuli and I teach film theory at Arizona University in Thessaloniki, in Greece. They came up with connections and correlations that are purely subjective. Therefore, we are asked to read a book about historical event with a beginning, a middle, and ending, with characters that have been singled out, with connections that have been made, with the main difference that the academic historians are not <laughs> very willing to acknowledge on that. Persian or Greek, no man threatens a messenger. Our understanding of the past is always in flux. As new evidence emerges, our values and perspectives change. What we see and what we look for from the past changes as well, even though the past itself never changes. What's happening in our bodies and our brains when we're watching a film? I've always been interested in sort of memory and the body. That was my original sort of interest, like the way that, you know, memories are embodied and we feel them very strongly. And unlike history, which is meant to be sort of cold and clinical and distanced, I understood memory to be powerfully affective with a strong bodily dimension. And to me, that was really important because I think that when we engage the past through memory, we feel it strongly. And I think it has the capacity to motivate us, to move us, to inform our politics because we feel it strongly. I could have gone one more person. I'm Jeff Lox. I'm on the faculty at Washington University in St. Louis in the departments of psychological and brain sciences and radiology. What drew you from the fields you're in in neuroscience and psychology to write a book about movies? First and foremost, I'm a movie fan. But more specifically, my lab studies how we understand complex, rich, dynamic, everyday activities. There's no brain area that's specialized for processing movies per se. Like most of your brain is just treating that experience as an experience. It's considering that sequence as something with which you might interact, right? So normally when we see stuff unfolding around us, we're not just passively sitting there waiting to find out how it's going to turn out, we're interacting in that situation. If a motorcycle is streaking toward you, your brain's going to want to prepare you to duck and get out of the way. And there's some broadband inhibitory signals that mostly keep us from actually executing those actions when we're watching movies. And when you call yourself a movie lover, what films jumped your mind as the experiences of the films that you really love or that prompted you to want to explore films more deeply? Oh, man, there's so many. I still relive on a weekly basis the experience of seeing Reds in a theater when I was pretty young. That's a film that made by Warren Beatty, and he starred with Diane Keaton. That film really holds up. If you to support the capitalist war machine, they will follow your example, and if the workers of the world stand together, the war can be stopped. Он говорит, что если мы все рабочие объединимся, то этой капиталистической войне мы можем you know, I started my career as a sort of traditional historian. Then I wrote a biography of John Reed, the American who took part in the Russian Revolution and wrote the best book about it, or the first great book about it, Ten Days That Shook the World. 
Robert Rosenstone was living in Los Angeles and working as an academic historian. And then one day, the phone rang. Warren Beatty called me and asked me to serve as historical consultant on Reds, eight years before the film came out, by the way. We had a very long relationship. We talked about everything, his life, his work, all that. And what was that like for you? Because you're basically doing the typical historian thing, which is going to archives and working and spending a lot of time alone. And then suddenly you're meeting often with one of the most well-known movie stars in the world. What was that like? Well, it was unusual, though. You know, I'd been, I've been interviewed before when books came out on the radio. It was something like that, except I was sitting with this man who was, he was incredibly beautiful. I mean, he was so good looking, it was, it was hard to look him in the face sometimes. All right, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You want me to come with you to New York? What as? Huh? Your girlfriend? What does that mean? What as? Your girlfriend, your mistress, your paramour, your concubine? There's something deeply human about trying to figure ourselves out by looking back through the past and telling ourselves stories about where we came from. The invention of film began with capturing ordinary, everyday reality. Workers leaving the Lumiere factory was shot in 1895 by the Lumiere brothers. It was around this time that the Edison Company started to make stories about the past. They made Joan of Arc, the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, and rescue of Captain John Smith by Pocahontas, all in 1895. So the history of film and films about history have always been intertwined. I was wondering if you've ever felt, as you're watching a historical film, that your sense of the past is being altered and influenced. Here I'm going to give a little praise to Clint Eastwood as a historical filmmaker. His two fairly recent war films, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, that was a revelation for me. Robert Burgoyne is known as one of the most eloquent and philosophical film scholars specializing in the history film. I thought both were extraordinarily well done. The two films are very different. They were made as partners with each other, a pair, one from the American side of the invasion of Iwo Jima, the other from the Japanese side. So, we got a hell of a lot of money to raise, not a lot of time. White House tomorrow, then we trot you over to shake hands with a couple of hundred congressmen who won't pull a penny out of their pockets, politicians and actors. You put them in a restaurant together, they die of old age before picking up the check. Both were progressive films, both. One set about to critique, this is Flags of Our Fathers, to critique the myth of heroism in American culture, the marketing of heroes. Hank didn't raise that flag. He raised the other one, the real flag. The what? The real, the real flag? There's a real flag? Yeah, ours was the replacement the flag. The exploitation of the soldiers in order to set up this heroic narrative. And this is something that Eastwood has done in a number of films. He's kind of undercut this myth of heroism in American culture and in American film. Where are you from, Georgia? Marine. Able Company. Okay, Marine. I mean, what is your hometown? That's fairly rare. I mean, can you think of many other films where a filmmaker from one country depicts 
people from a country that the filmmaker's country was at war with and depicts them in a sympathetic way? Not that I know of. Well, let me retract that. All Quiet on the Western Front does this. The anti-war film All Quiet on the Western Front has been made and remade several times, including by Netflix in 2022. But many agree the best version was the first, made in 1930. One of the iron youth who have made Germany invincible in the field. Look at him, sturdy and bronzed and clear-eyed, the kind of soldier every one of you should envy. The film is made by Lewis Milestone, Hollywood director. It's a very sympathetic treatment of the German soldiers in World War I. I think it's a profoundly humanistic film, and in some ways, probably the precursor to what Eastwood did with Letters from Iwo Jima. Dirty and painful to die for your country. When it comes to dying for your country, it's better not to die at all. There are millions out there dying for their countries. What good is it? And I'm wondering how the cultural role of the historical film you feel has changed, whether you want to go back right from its beginning or even over the last couple of generations. Do you feel that it occupies a different space? The historical film early on became an important genre and important both in positive and negative ways. The film that comes to mind is Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. Uh, The Birth of a Nation is probably the first historical film that really could claim to be making a statement about history, and it was appreciated and taken at the time as a true statement of what historians knew about that period. And for people that aren't familiar with that film, what is the basics of The Birth of a Nation? Well, The Birth of a Nation is really the story of the birth of the modern 20th century Ku Klux Klan and has as its basic plot line the idea that the white Southerners are being absolutely supplanted and displaced. And it's almost like the ideas about we will not be replaced. I mean, this there's many echoes to today in Birth of a Nation. There's a way in which the white nation, if you will, are experiencing this kind of entirely fictionalized, of course, erasure, you know, in the culture. And so the corrective to that is the Ku Klux Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan is portrayed as the heroic saviors of the Old South. Today, it has been relegated in some ways to a memory hole. That is, it's been censored to the point that it almost can't be shown anymore. We have a strong knee-jerk reaction to it, even when it comes up in discourse. But at the time it was made, it really did represent what one school of historical thought had as their version of that past. The music you're hearing is from the movie's original soundtrack. D.W. Griffith was best known for popularizing cinematic techniques that have now become mainstream. The close-up, tracking shots, and intercutting between action scenes to create a sense of suspense— These were all techniques that defined his films. Griffith was born in Kentucky, a decade after the Civil War, into a culture saturated with the myth of the lost cause. To this day, The Birth of a Nation is his most famous and infamous film, and it remains one of the most financially successful films ever made. But its biggest impact was cultural. 
You're the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson. Showed it at the White House. And he said that it was history written with lightning. That's Harry Belafonte talking about the film's reception from another historical movie, Spike Lee's The Black Klansman. The Birth of a Nation showed the power of moving images to mobilize people. This is an outrageous reading of that past, but it had real-world effects. The Ku Klux Klan was enormously rejuvenated by the film. It had a profound impact on ideas about the past and ideas about race, and it led to a kind of upsurge in a sense of whites needed to assert themselves in the culture. However, there is also a positive effect that came from the film and its notoriety, and that is that the NAACP was formed directly after The Birth of a Nation was released as a response to The Birth of a Nation. What do you think it means to tell the truth in a historical film? That is a very big question. I honestly, and I think that truth, the question of truth here does kind of converge with the question of ethical obligation. Historical films, as Natalie Zeman Davis says, are a thought experiment. It's a thought experiment about the past. So the traditional understanding of history is that evidence is what separates history from fiction. Well, that is what people, what historians say, but I think for the most part they're wrong, which is why I've been writing books on film for the last 30 years. There was a great French theorist of history named Michel de Certeau, and he wrote a book on writing history. And the first sentence in the book is, history may be our myth. And by our, he's including Western civilization. I wish he would have written history is our myth, because myths are very useful things. I mean, they teach us who we are, who we belong to, what we believe, what we should honor. I mean, of course, They're myths. They're not true. (laughs) They're not factual. But I think history is a kind of myth as well. You know, that we have heroes, we have values inculcated, especially I'm talking about historical film. Now, I think it probably works for all films. And yet lots of people, the general audience, often treats them as real, right? This is what happened. This is, you know, despite the disclaimers that this is a story based on a real facts. Of course, It's based on evidence, but it can't all be based on evidence. And the problem is that the word can generalize about a scene, about a person, about a movement, because they're based on the limited amount of data we have. No decent, God-fearing Christians among the Bolsheviks. Does one have to be God-fearing and Christian to be decent? The second thing is, even when we have data, It doesn't tell you all the things you would want to know as somebody putting images on a screen. What did a room look like in Greenwich Village? I'm referring to Reds, of course. In Greenwich Village, in revolutionary Russia, so forth. I don't have to say that when I write about it. I can just say, this took place in the basement of a union hall in Chicago. The filmmaker has to show that basement. And so that is a fiction. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world 
at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Kim Nelson is a professor of cinema arts at the University of Windsor, Ontario. Her documentary is called Picturing the Past, and it asks, what role does history actually have in historical films? What role should it have? Is again trying to menace us with fire. Four years ago, he thought he could break us with the Brits. He was wrong. He is wrong again now. We shall never surrender. Do you feel like there's an ethical and authenticity difference when you're dealing with Winston Churchill or Queen Anne versus Bridgerton, where it's fictional characters and events. The productions who use a historical consultant are the ones who really want to know as much as they possibly can about the context in which they're setting their world in. So the actual process you're involved with is probably fairly similar. As a historian on film sets, Hannah Gregg has to navigate the space between the expectations of her academic discipline and the separate demands of the film industry. Any film or or television drama creates its world. And whenever you work with a production, you need to decide how you feel about that world that's being created. If there is um, a a line as a historian you think should be defended or not. And and I suppose one of the things, the questions that I asked myself when I started working on The Favourite, because it was a very different kind of script. What's really important to me is that these women are seen to have power. I'm ready for the Russian ambassador. Who did your makeup? We went for something dramatic. Do you like it? You look like a badger. Oh. These women at court are seen to be politically significant because that's an element that's often been missing in historical dramas and one that I found frustrating in other productions I've worked on, this idea that women are empowered, they can be politically significant, they can have authority. I will manage it. Go back to your rooms. I definitely think there is a bit of a difference if you are dealing with somebody who is a real person, um, that you perhaps do have a slightly different responsibility. Alex von Tunzelman with Hannah Gregg co-created and co-hosted a podcast called The History Film Club. Some films are historical comedies. If you look at something like The Lion in Winter is kind of, you know, Plantagenet Family Christmas with Eleanor Aquitaine and Henry II, or if you look at Monty Python films, often these are real characters or possibly real historical characters, you know, the life of Brian, that's a whole debate over that. Hail Messiah! I'm not the Messiah, will you please listen? I am not the Messiah, do you understand? Honestly! Only the true Messiah denies his divinity. What? Well, what sort of chance does that give me? All right, I am the Messiah! But you are using them for comedy purposes. They're not doing what they would have done in real life at all. So you can't really say you're being authentic to those characters. But is it okay that you're using them for these purposes, given that the setting is quite clearly comical? 
Those who see history in moving images as fun and fluffy entertainment, dismissing concerned historians as pedantic, nitpicky accountants, may be overestimating our ability to sort fact from fever dream fictions and underestimating the power of moving images to obscure more accurate information. Some studies that have been done having test subjects read historical texts that are accurate and then watch, say, Amadeus. You can have read the text that is closer to what we think happened, but it gets blown out by this overwhelming imagery of a film and the narrative that comes along with it. It was so simple that it terrified me. First, I must get the death mass, and then I must achieve his death. Yeah, and then you're like, maybe Salieri did kill him, though? And it's like, no, he definitely didn't. That is is just completely made up. (laughs) So unfair. So unfair. You know, but on the other hand, if it drives people's imaginations, I think often that process also goes in reverse, that what you find in the real world is that people often go and watch Amadeus or something, and then they get more interested in Mozart. Music. A divine music bursts out over them all. A great mass of death. Requiem mass for Wolfgang Mozart. They may even go see some of the music live or listen to some online or whatever, and they will go to the Wikipedia page at least and start looking up the reality. And that's the beginning of their own research journey on that. Okay, you know, they're not going to go and do full historical research or go to the archives, but actually their minds are intrigued by it. A history film is more powerful in terms of the impression it creates to the audience. It can engage you emotionally in a much more direct way. The version of history that you get out of a standard historical film is more definitive in some ways than the history book. You see something on the screen and you think this is what it was. It has this positive resonance with the way you understand the past. And sometimes this is good, sometimes it's scary. Town a half a day and I've got a job. It just everything clicked. It's as if I was meant to be here. Film can't be written off as mere entertainment. Not by historians, not by filmmakers, and not by audiences. We may think we're just being entertained, and oftentimes we are. But that's not all that's happening when we watch depictions of the past. I get up, I go to work on Saturday. You know, why did I meet this kid? I don't know. Why did I run out of gas at that time? I don't know. But it happened. It happened. Psychology professor and renowned researcher on human memory and cognition, and avowed movie lover, Jeffrey Zaks. You know, another favorite film of mine is Earl Morris's Thin Blue Line. And that film is all about the unreliability of eyewitness testimony, the false sense of veridicality that can come from a well-staged reenactment. Tell us a little bit about how films affect us in different ways from other forms of storytelling. Taking real life as a reference point is a useful way to think about this. In real life, 
We think of that as having all the information available. And in lots of ways, we have more information than many other media. So we have super high fidelity, visual, auditory, tactile information. We have proprioception, the sense of where our body is in space. We have vestibular sense of how we're oriented and moving. So when we experience something in real life, the visual objects that we see don't come labeled as cups and chairs. And especially when you get into more ambiguous cases, that's a non-trivial difference. And we can't just look at somebody and know what's going on in their head. And you contrast that with like a novel where the visual information is very impoverished compared to what we see in real life. But, you know, you take a Henry James and he can give you a very detailed, rich exposition of the internal life of the characters. Okay, so now you come to movies, they're somewhere in between those and they have their own unique properties. Given the power of films to convince us that what we're watching is real, fidelity to the evidence of what actually happened really matters. The makers of historical films function as mass media historians. Whether they're communicating through text or through moving images, they have an ethical obligation to those in the past as well as to audiences in the present. That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! What happens to our sense of the past when we're shown things that didn't happen like Mel Gibson in Braveheart as William Wallace, romancing King Edward II's wife, Isabella, and having a son with her, when in fact Isabella was only 10 and living in France at the time, and she didn't have her son until seven years after Wallace died. Why do you help me? Because of the way you are looking at me now. <gasps> or Inglorious Bastards, showing Hitler dying in a cinema fire. Who wants to send a message to Germany? I have a message for Germany. <laughs> the Great Escape swaps nationalities of real people to create heroes for a domestic audience. That's absolutely forbidden to cross it, you know that. Yeah, but my baseball rolled over there. How am I going to get my baseball? Steve McQueen plays an American captive. But there were no Americans throwing baseballs at Stalag Left 3. There were British prisoners, Canadians, Europeans, South Africans, Argentinians, Australians, New Zealanders. But no American was in the camp or escaped to commandeer a motorcycle and roar off into the sunset. Then there are realistic films that distort the intentions and actions of historical figures and events, speculating wildly to create a riveting story. Why was I, the chief of special ops, selected to travel to the South Pole at that time to do a job that any number of others could have done? So I decided to check it out. Many strange things were happening, and your Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them. Counterfactual histories create an alternative past, sometimes as a warning, as in The Man in the High Castle. Well, my country back. A series that asks, what if Germany and Japan had won the Second World War? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the Axis powers of America. Counterfactual histories can also serve as wish fulfillment. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a film that asks, 
What if Brad Pitt had gotten between the Manson family and Sharon Tate, saving her and all of her friends? When it comes to film, I somehow think that the work of presenting the counterfacts of the historical world in some ways takes us away from what I think is the point. And that is to give us a deeper engagement with a past that actually happened so that we have a, some sort of way in. We can kind of map ourselves into a past that actually occurred, that had a real impact on lives. Whereas with the counterfactual film, I just don't see that deep, penetrating immersion in a past world really being affected. Well, as long as the complete fabrications are there for us to see, and we know that this is not really what happened, then I think counterfactual history is useful because it probes us to think that things could have been otherwise. And I think there's always a benefit from that, that we don't take history as something that was meant to happen as it did, that History is a very complex process, and in that process, if some parameters were different, then the outcome would have been different too. And this is something that we need to become more aware of. If a film by Tarantino makes us think of that process, then that's actually a game. You are real, right? Because... They are so obviously not historical. There's not the danger really of fooling people. And I think people, you know, go into them understanding, you know, what they are, that they are counterfactual. I don't think somebody goes into Inglorious Bastards and thinks that they are going to be watching a historical film about the Holocaust, right? So I think the framing is important. And once the framing has been established, I think they're useful in helping us to understand that they're could have been other possible outcomes in the past and then can be other possible outcomes now, that the future could be different from the course that we're on. Yeah, I, I think they're really interesting. I am a little concerned about what they might do to people's sense of the past. One thing I think Tarantino's done is he was being criticized for violence. And now if he's perpetrating violence against Hitler or the Manson murders, then Everybody can enjoy that violence. Tarantino is tricky also because I think he wants to be sort of cool and exciting and provocative, but not necessarily provocative in a constructive way. We'll give you a something you can't take off. Tarantino is more interested in playing with film and film history than he is in sort of thinking of like a historian. Yeah! My colleague Andy Butler and his collaborators did these studies where they had people reading historical essays that were written to be as factually accurate as possible, and also seeing historical pictures about the same events that were optimized for entertainment, where the filmmakers in general self-avowedly had less of a commitment to getting the particulars of the facts right. and. They found that people are very poor at keeping track of which information they learned from reading the historical essay and which information they learned from watching the movie, which means that their understanding of what were the historical facts on the ground after having seen historical films that were unfaithful to the facts. 
was compromised. There's a second issue, which I think is also really important, which is the ethics of rhetoric. You know, to what extent is it okay to manipulate the emotional expressivity of a sequence in a historical piece in the service of telling a story? Hold on. Hold on now. You're all right. You're all right. I'm not going to make it. You started with those Guardian articles critiquing films before you became a screenwriter. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. I I was a gamekeeper turned poacher. That's how I see it. Alex von Tunzelman. So I started out trying to keep to the rules and now I break them myself. And then I can critique that again. It's a lovely little cottage industry I've got where I can just keep uh, making things up and then critiquing myself. But having taken that position and then being in the creative seat, that's a really excellent background to come from because then you're very intentional about the accuracy and, and what you're doing. Yeah, but I'm no better than any other filmmaker. Absolutely not, because I'm dealing with the same things they're dealing with. And now I understand that. You're not making films in an atmosphere of complete creative freedom. You are fulfilling a brief, which you've been, you know, you've been told to write a screenplay that does this thing and tells this kind of story for this kind of market. And the director's been told to direct that. And, you know, you might be able to push against it a bit, but you can't really make them make a completely different film than they want to make. And that all comes back to the kind of financing of it. And these are incredibly expensive historical productions, and they're certainly not made out of the goodness of anyone's heart. So, you know, these, they're made to turn a profit. That tends to go over the top of the people I were with. Fire! They put a curtain of shells over you, and you advance. That was a theory of the thing. There's a lot of people that feel that documentaries are more truthful about history than films featuring actors. I realized that this was the moment of the assault. And then zero. Somebody shouted, there they go. To the left were the London Scottish running forward. I gave the order up the leathers, over the top. What are your thoughts about those different ways of approaching the past and historical truth? Documentary films often sport their archival credentials in a really prominent way. And the idea is that the archive is the repository of historical truth. And documentary films will frequently marshal as many archival resources as possible. And this becomes a kind of guarantee that the film that they have produced has a truth value to it. But what that ignores is the fact that the archive itself is a constructed history. The elements in the archive have been selected, they've been curated, some have been foregrounded, some have been backgrounded. They frequently have a kind of nationalistic orientation of various archives. Uh, the archive is not the voice of truth. The archive is a particular narrative of history that is then being utilized for other narratives of history. Documentary has different conventions, generally from a fiction film. Documentaries, for instance, usually include more of a sort of meta-awareness that it's being constructed, right? And I think that sometimes we see the documentary filmmaker but the documentary also, it, you know, is using strategies to, to produce truth claims, right? And those are conventions. 
just like there are conventions of written history for producing truth. A documentary is as artificial and constructed as a fictional or dramatic film, but a historical narrative, a written historical narrative is also constructed, is also the product of imagination, as as Robert Rosenstone and others have argued. I think it's a mystification that documentaries, however true they may be to the archives of the past, that they are not involved with fictional elements. I've written one documentary. I wrote the narration for one documentary. It was on the Spanish Civil War, on the so-called Abraham Lincoln Brigade, which took part in the Spanish Civil War. Basically a communist enterprise funded by the Kremlin, but there were some idealists and socialists and anarchists in the war as well. Five years before the United States entered World War II, 3,200 Americans fought fascism in Spain. At the time, they were celebrated for the heroism, yet today they are virtually unknown in their own country. What does a documentarist do in general? I mean, I can't cover every documentary ever made, but they take the data. A lot of it is often talking heads, like the witnesses in Reds, but in the ones in The Good Fight, which I helped to write. They're old people remembering the past. The beautiful thing about that, the feeling of camaraderie there, everyone had a oneness, a singleness of purpose, irrespective of their color or their sex. And this is a wonderful feeling. I love documentaries, but but I think they suffer from many of the things that the dramatic film suffers from, because as accurate as you try to be, you're then telling a story. With the documentary I was involved with, The Good Fight, the filmmakers were three young leftists, as would be expected. This was during the 60s and early 70s, when the National Endowment for the Humanities was actually funding such things. So they didn't want anything negative said about the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, which were their heroes. That's why they were making this. Well, I admire the Abraham Lincoln Battalion as well. But you and I know that memory is a very slippery category. Spain was the great first love of our lives. And since you always remember it, in this instance, you remember it in the most positive and glowing terms when you give some thought to it because it was one of your finest moments. And then the story itself, what happened with the good fight, and I think it's a very good documentary, was they simply did not want to mention that there was terrorism within the ranks of the brigades as there was going on in Moscow at that time, that a few people were killed, that a few others were ostracized, etc., etc. But they just didn't want to do it. They shot the film first and then asked me to write the narration. And when I wrote some of the things trying to slip that in, it got edited out. I think that's very common in documentaries. We historians never approach the past with a tabula rasa. We approach it with our minds and our hearts. We approach it with our values and our sense of what the world is and what the world should be or what it shouldn't be. I don't think there's any way of taking those things out of documentaries, out of dramatic films, or out of written history. For me, the challenge has always been how to take advantage of the power of the medium to really touch people, speak to people, to make them feel connected to the past. 
Alison Landsberg is best known for her highly influential work on the emotional power of history in film and TV. Spectators feel suddenly like they know exactly what happened and they were there in the past, right? I think that it's important for a historical film, even while it's trying to draw spectators in and to make them feel connected to a particular past, to make it meaningful to them, I think there also need to be strategies embedded in the narrative, in the form that pop spectators out, that alienate them, that remind them that this is foreign and different and not their own actual experience, right? And so and I, so I think that the really effective historical films are ones that move between a kind of identification and alienation, a kind of oscillation between being drawn in and feeling close to whatever it is that's being represented and also at other moments being sort of pushed out of the narrative, reminded of who they are, that they are actually experiencing it. Can you give an example of a film that ruptures that sense of identification in a way that was very effective and worked well? Well, I mean, I would go, I would use the show Deadwood because I think that does it really effectively. I mean, many people comment on the sort of crazy language in this show, right? So that the dialogue that the characters speak is a kind of, in Milch's words, it's like a cross between like Shakespearean language and biblical language. And it's actually quite difficult to understand what is being said, you know, to understand the content of the conversations the characters are having. I mean, gradually over time, one sort of gets accustomed to it, but it's very alienating. Annexation to Montana instead of Dakota. Hiking our skirts to Helena might put Yankton back on its heels. And its minutes turn to hours over the piss pot. I wonder should we ruinate publicly in loud voices over forming a new territory with an eye towards future statehood or even our own republic. I mean, I think if it was just that, it would be hard for people. People wouldn't, wouldn't watch it. I was particularly taken by a particular scene where one of the main characters, who's kind of the main power broker in town, He runs a saloon, but he's kind of like the main guy, um, Al Swearingen. And he has a kidney stone. And he's in excruciating pain. God, mother, take me! You can't get your water flowing. I'm trying. Help me cry. In some ways, I mean, this is speaking to what medical treatment was like right on the frontier, you know, that the lack of medical treatment, the kinds of pain people endured in their daily lives, but also the lack of privacy, that he is screaming in pain and everyone all over town is hearing him and they're hearing him and it's creating anxiety in them because they are wondering if he's okay and he's this kind of important, powerful person in town and what will happen to the power dynamics if he you know, doesn't survive. But what it does to us as spectators is fully engage us mimetically with him. Something I've been thinking about right now in the way media is gone and the way everyone's sort of siloed in the media that they choose to consume, that in a way, the historical film, and, and by that I also include his streaming series, is maybe getting to be one of the last places where people from maybe diverse political points of view would consume one piece of media that is purporting to speak to reality. So I was just wondering what you think about that. Does the historical film have this really more important role as, you know, Walter Cronkite is long gone and people are not really coming together to even get the same facts on things. 
I think you're right. This is an arena that can bring all kinds of audiences together. The public sphere, of course, it's kind of like the, the public square, only done today more via media than anything else. And the historical film, more than I think any other form of media, as you say, has this potential to galvanize strong responses from all kinds of political perspectives, but galvanize them hopefully in a way that leads to further analysis, further discussion, and airing of different points of view. I quite like that. I think that's a a good observation. Are there other media artifacts that accomplish the same thing in the same or in an equally kind of powerful way where what is being talked about is really in some ways the most significant aspects of our shared history? I think the historical film can claim that mantle. Film scholar Ria Thanuli understands these questions. She's an accomplished theorist and a documentary filmmaker. In this moment of fractured partisan politics exacerbated by social media and cable news, are history films, mainstream history films, actually one of the last remaining places where the public can encounter a point of view that gets seen across political divides, that brings people together that would never cross paths on Facebook or would never watch the same news show? That's true. Yes, we all watch, to some extent, similar historical series. Maybe we all watch The Crown, or we all watch Babylon Berlin, which is one of my favorite uh, TV shows. Yeah, I love that. So yes, film or TV productions have that power to reach a wide audience and therefore have the spectators think about a message that is... The same for all of them, instead of being um, partial to one side or the other. Although in the end, we're all going to disagree with each other about what that film (laughs) means. But at least we have something to discuss and that connects us. Because, you know, all historical films have been interpreted in ways that reinforce in the end our own assumptions about the past. Disagreement is a natural thing, but it also has to have a positive effect by bringing us closer. Because if each of us stays in their own corner, this problem of fragmentation and polarization will only get worse. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! We need to find some common ground. And maybe a film could do that. You were listening to a documentary called Picturing the Past by University of Windsor film professor Kim Nelson. Technical production, Danielle Duval, with additional audio editing by Nick Hector. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.